Good afternoon. The panel RNZ National Wallace Chapman with you. We have Raj Chakraborty and Zoe George. And you can listen to the panel on iHeart, uh, on Spotify, and on Apple if you want to go back and listen to yesterday's show. So it's all there ready for you. Uh, now, just some traffic here. Due to a crash, truck crash, State Highway 3 was closed uh, at Waitara near the intersection with Princess Street, uh, but that has now reopened. Also, uh, that uh, report earlier of a car blocking State Highway 1C uh, at the Avalon Drive roundabout, that has been cleared. So both those crashes have been cleared. Now, house prices, they've been a topic of this week, have they not? CoreLogic released its latest suburb price mapping figures recently and showed that while prices were down annually in 860 of the 917 suburbs analysed, they were up in 57. In 33 suburbs, prices increased by at least 2%, and in six they rose uh, just over 5%. Prices in Auckland, Wellington, they'd fallen the most over the downturn. And soon we talked to someone in a tiny town that had the biggest jump in prices, over 8%. What do you think that is? But first we have uh, economist at OPS Partners, Ed McKnight. Ed, welcome. Wallace, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure, Ed. Do you think the days of falling house prices are nearing and in flattening out. What do you reckon, Ed? What's your take? I expect we'll start to see that within the next couple of months. Look, prices in New Zealand have taken a tumble since about November 2021. And in some areas, they have fallen by up to 30%. That's primarily in the Wellington region. So I expect that there will be a natural bottoming out at some point over the next couple of months. If I am in in an area where my house price is for, has fallen quite a bit, what do I do? The main thing is to continue holding on. Some people will see their house value go down and think, I've lost a lot of money. The key thing to remember is you don't lose the money until you sell that property. Look, if you paid some money for an asset and that asset has gone down in value, you still own the house. And that's something Mm. to be really proud of. Now, you haven't lost money until you sell it. Now, we all expect that over the next decade, property prices will likely recover at some point. If you continue to hold that house, by the time you do sell it, you may find that you haven't lost money. Yeah, it's just a matter of trying to make it work, eh? Because you've got that mortgage squeeze there, Ed, and in some some cases it's really quite a type. But stay there. Let's bring in our panellist, Zoe George. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I'm not too worried about the dip personally. I'm doing okay, but I have friends mm. who are in quite a tough predicament oh, at really? the moment and need to sell their home, and it is causing really? a lot of stress. So I guess, you know, what's your advice to them who, who do need to get out of this situation um, and just don't know how? I think in that specific situation, you'd want to make sure that you don't cheap out on the marketing of your property. So if you are in that position where you are forced to sell, it can be really tempting to say, I don't want to spend much on that extra advertising on Trade Me, or I don't, or I want to go for the real estate agent with the cheapest commission. It's important that you try and get the best price possible within this tough market. So I'd be trying to make sure I'm using the right real estate agent 
and spending enough on marketing that I get enough buyers through the door. And it's a funny old thing too, isn't it, Ed? Because I mean, we're just talking house prices here, aren't we? And houses and the, the, the housing market. But um, houses, they can be quite individual things too. Sometimes someone can come along and fall in love with that house and want to pay a bit extra if it looks up to date, right and so forth. That's correct. I know of one specific example in Christchurch where a friend of mine was selling a property and the price he wanted, it was quite high for Christchurch, about $2.4 million. Now, we oh. all told him he was dreaming that he, would, that he wouldn't get that sort of price. Well, some Aucklanders moved down and ended up paying two point three for it. That was about three hundred k more than I thought what he'd sell that property for. So, that if you market it the right way, even in a tough market, some uh, sellers are able to achieve quite good prices. The key is to make sure that you're staging it so that you're uh, putting or positioning your property in a way that someone's going to fall in love with it and then pay your top dollar. Raj. Um. Look, I just wanted to look briefly from the um, from the other side of the court, which is that I think it's great that there are some encouraging signs for first time buyers um, in those in those falling prices. However, a friend of mine who lives in Upper Hutt and is uh, currently and is looking to buy a home slightly closer to where they work in Wellington City was reminding me not long ago of a counterbalancing factor to two lower prices, which is interest rates. So, you know, and, and his sentence was that a million being repaid at 2% looks very different from a million being repaid at 5%. Mm. And so that's what I wanted to ask Ed about, which is the impact of the higher interest rates on people looking to buy as well as people looking to make their monthly repayments. Oh, look, that is exactly the factor that a lot of people are looking at at the moment, both uh, owner-occupiers, people buying their own homes, and also property investors. The higher interest rates at the moment are really squeezing the cash flows or the household budgets of Kiwis out there. And you really do feel for people in the likes of Lower and Upper Hutt. Their house values have fallen about 25%. So there will be people out there saying, oh, gosh, I can potentially get a good price but actually I can't afford the mortgage repayments. And perhaps even if I can afford them at 6%, the bank is going to test my mortgage application at 8.6% or 8.7%. So even if you can afford the 6, 6.5% interest rate, you might not always get the mortgage. Well, lovely to have you on the program, Ed. Makes sense, and uh, thanks for your time. Thanks, Wallace. That's uh, Ed McKnight there now. As I said, uh, the biggest jump in house prices has been a small town, rather small town, up 8.1%. Now, where is that? With us is real estate agent Melanie Muldrew, who lives in Tuatapere, Southland. Melanie, kia ora. Good to have you on. Uh, kia ora. How are you, Wallace? Very well indeed. How are you? Sunny to a toppity. <laughs> now, so it's nice to have us on the map. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what's going on in little to a toppity? Okay. Well, sure. Um, I guess what we've seen recently is because we're we're 
still one of the most affordable areas in New Zealand to buy a property. And, and when I say affordable, you can still get a three-bedroom home here on quarter of an acre for, for less than, you know, 350000 What? Um, hang on, hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did you say, did you just, did I just hear correctly, you can get a three-bedroom house on a quarter acre for under three hundred? Well, we, we do have a few of those, but yeah, more around at the moment between sort of the 300,000 to about to 380,000 for Good. a four bedroom. Good there you go. Grief. You get a four bedroom home here. <laughs> for, well. So even though we have definitely increased in our prices, um, I guess because so many other regions of New Zealand, you know, they are costing people a lot more, you know, for their properties in their homes. So, yeah, we're seeing a lot more people from the North Island and other regions of the South Island say, you know what, we want the quieter life. We actually want to live in a house um, that we have a really low mortgage on or don't have a mortgage. Um, yeah. So uh, Zoe, it sounds hmm. a dream. Here. Well, I, I bought my house for less than $300,000 10 years ago, and it's two bedrooms, and it's tiny. Um, and it's, you know, my, yeah. my mortgage is less than some people's deposits, and I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate. It's so fortunate. But I'm thinking maybe I should move to Southland. I wouldn't mind a four-bedroom home. No. It's Sounds it's nice. the dream. It's the dream. Stay there, Melanie. Raj? Yeah, as long as, I mean, it absolutely is. And for anyone who can, who who loves the outdoors, loves um, a small feel of a small community mm, around yeah. and can work remotely, um, mm. you know, uh, go for some of these quarter acre paradises. I mean, that's the last place where the quarter acre paradise dream <laughs> still lives, right? <laughs> Melanie, I'm going to have a, a, a very quiet drink tonight and go and trade me and look at places into a tuppity, all right? I good think on you. you should. Please do that. Thank you. Very good. That's Melanie Mulder there who lives in Tuatapiti South and 17 past four of the panel. Uh, we have Zoe George and Raj Chakraborty this afternoon. Quick fix diets are unlikely to work in the long run, research shows. The closure of Ginny Craig calls for a closer look at other diets making similar claims. The global weight loss and weight management industry is valued at nearly 36 billion New Zealand dollars. How do we move forward here? With us is Associate Professor Andrea Brackus, a registered dietitian and Associate Professor of Nutrition at the University of Auckland, wrote a very interesting piece about this very issue on Newsroom. Uh, Andrea, kia ora. Hello, how are you? Very well indeed. In your experience as a dietitian, what, what was wrong with the Ginny Craig-style diets? Well, it, it wasn't all bad. I mean, you know, it's not. It's certainly, you know, done done a lot of good for for a small percentage of the population over the years. So it's not all bad, but in general, these diets are very restrictive. They they think short term. It's all about maximum weight loss for a short period of time, and it just the research shows it just doesn't um, help people keep the weight off long term so it's just it's just the longevity of those diets doesn't seem to be cutting it zoe george let's bring you in yeah um i'm sure if you speak to most women in new zealand we'll tell you that we've had a problematic 
you know, time with food at least once in our lives. I know that, you know, personally I have and I've tried all sorts of diets under the sun and, um, you know, and I'm, I'm feeling quite comfortable in my body now uh, in my 30s, but it's taken me a long time. But I, I agree, right? And I've tried every diet, Atkins. I haven't tried Jenny Craig's, but I've, I've tried all sorts of things. Is that right? And yeah. how, did, how did you find going through that sort of stuff? Um, I mean, I did the low-calorie fasting diet for a bit and I just got really irritable. <laughs> and then I just wanted chocolate. It's just like, well, how do I – and this is a great question, I think, for Andrew as well how do we ensure that we're getting all the nutrients and nourishment that we need to sustain a healthy body while still enjoying in moderation things like chocolate or a glass of rosé with dinner yeah that Great is question. a million dollar question um, I, I think that there's not going to be one plan or one diet that works for everybody. It, it's and Zoe, I mean, your your own kind of journey in in you know food and nutrition, you know, is a kind of testament to that. But we almost need to find what works for us in and and also learn to be a little bit more competent around food. So learn to be, you know, a little bit you know, have a small amount of some foods and, and not all or nothing type thinking. So that that's certainly something that I would like to see is, is done more in the kind of the weight loss industry, but also take the emphasis off weight because as soon as we start thinking, oh, I need to lose 10 kilograms by summer to fit that bathing suit it's just a very negative sort of a goal whereas thinking about okay well, I'm going to eat whole grains and fruits and vegetables this week and I'm going to try to cook at home you know once or twice and I'm going to try to exercise they are behavior goals that are probably a little bit more positive albeit dull and and you know sort of moderate but you know, they, these are the, the basic things seem to be more sustainable. Oh, this, this is great, uh, uh, Andrea, and there'll be a lot of people listening to this around the country resonating with uh, this diet uh, this diet story. What have you tried? How do you find it? You can get in touch with me. A 2101 Zoe there just saying she, uh, she tried everything under the sun. Mm. Raj Chakraborty. Um from my own experience of trying to eat right with an eye on my weight, um, I would say that what has worked for me is, yeah, to find a practice that's sustainable for me. And also, as a kind of rule of thumb, I prefer suggestions that try to get you to adopt better habits or a different perspective towards food than be upselling you or having their own products to sell to you. So, mm. you know, for example... Two ideas that have stayed with me for, uh, from a book I uh, read by Paul McKenna. One was um, to stay regularly hydrated because very often what we mistake for hunger is actually thirst. And the second was um, it, it's a kind of additional benefit to eating mindfully and beginning with smaller portions, which is that if you begin with a smaller portion and then pay attention to what you're eating, there's time for your brain to receive the messages from your stomach that you are filling up and you're more likely to stop at a good amount, 
Whereas eating quickly and inattentively can mean that you eat much more than you need to because you didn't give your stomach that time to send those messages to your brain. So it's ideas like that that have really influenced my eating to this day. Interesting. Do you want to comment on that, Andrea? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, it's really interesting that everyone has a sort of a story or a theory that works for them. But, you know, and a lot of these ideas that we come up with, you know, come back to individual sort of responsibility. But it's really complex. It's incredibly complex because we then think about all the, you know, the fast food outlets, you know, around the place that are advertising, you know, all the time. And, you know, at the moment, particularly in lockdown, you think, Mm -hmm. well, you know, where do you get some sort of enjoyment or an outlet? Well, often it was those types of kind of eating places that we might get a bit of a break. So it's it's hard and um, it really comes down to each person, you know, trying to work their way through what works for them, acknowledging that our environment is not going to help us. It's just finally, uh, on a final thought, just going back, looking at the history of diets there, uh, Andrea, because I can recall the, the, the pineapple diet in the early 80s. I can recall the cabbage soup diet. I can also recall the seven-day milk diet. Is there something in us, in our nature, that we long for some sort of, uh, I don't know, is there something within us that... We yearn for this because it's been going for so long. Yeah, look, that's a really good point. And what you'll notice about all of those diets, and similarly with Jenny Craig, is that they're they're very structured. So do eat this, don't eat that, eat at this time, don't eat at that time. They're they're very very structured. Now, in some regards, a lot of a lot of people will like that approach because they don't have to think. They don't have to right. kind of deal with all the social food environments, eating out, things like that, because for for a period of, you know, a few weeks or months, they've got their structure and they don't have to think. So there is something in that. It's just that that's not an approach that's going to work long term. Very good. Nice to have you on the program. That's Associate Professor Andrea Brackus, a registered dietitian uh, and at the uh, University of Auckland, 26 past four. Wonderful to be with you. I'm just going to say this again because uh, a lot of people will say, I missed the show. How can I hear it? You can go onto iHeart, onto Apple, onto Spotify, and you can listen to any show. You might have missed it. You might want to be doing the lawns or washing the dishes or whatever, and you can listen to the panel. There you go. Now, I have this dilemma that I, I need your help with. So help me out. This from the New Yorker, and it goes like this. While we were driving recently and going highway speed in the middle lane, my husband opened the passenger side window and tossed a banana peel onto the road. I immediately expressed my disgust, telling him that I'm opposed to littering, that it's a bad example for the 13-year-old we had in the car. It's slippery, dangerous, and just dirty, I said. My husband's response was that the banana peel would biodegrade. And he said, I'm an adult, so I'll do as I want. 
I responded that the peer wouldn't biodegrade on asphalt. He refuses to acknowledge that he made a mistake or changed his behaviour. We have reached a deadlock. What does the panel think? Zoe. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I actually thought that some of the response from the ethicist around this, they said, a marriage that's on solid ground shouldn't slip on a banana peel. And I thought that that was quite poetic. Uh, I must admit, I would be slightly annoyed because I like to make banana peel tea for my garden. So uh, uh, why did you not keep that? And if my husband knew me best, he would keep a banana peel for me for my okay, garden. Okay, well, they're coming through now. Dump the husband. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, In other words, the sun will degrade the banana. Raj. Um, as a novelist, I love this particular topic <laughs> because, you know, this is, this is our bread and butter, uh, a small incident <laughs> that ends up revealing so much more. Right. And, and, it's a and, novel, Raj. And, or it's a short a story writer, you know. Um, and this belief that what is apparently going on is only the tip of yes. what is actually coming to the surface. And... You know, um, and I actually, you know, in terms of um, in terms of the the details of the debate, I actually almost entirely agree with the wife in in all of the points that she makes. But I also think that um, the ethicist is right that for one partner to be right about this particular issue is not the same necessarily as them handling it right or even understanding it right. And, you know, I experience this not just as a spouse, but in incidents as a parent all the time. And I think a lot of parents would, would testify to the same experience that being in the right and handling the incident right don't necessarily always overlap. Mm. Mm. I could just listen to you for half an hour talking about someone throwing a banana skin out the window. That's what I want to say. Um, Wallace, you must know that fruit will degrade on any substrate. Hey, the 13-year-old is capable of understanding the principle of when it might be all right to throw something out the window, but preferable not to. Another one here says grounds for divorce. Uh, she should keep the banana skin and throw him out. <laughs> Al says, I throw banana skins out on the side of the road all the time. It's better than in the landfill. Mm. Stop the car, says someone, and say, right, Mr. Adult, out you get, and you can find your own way home. <laughs> By the way, buy your own dinner as well, and don't slam the car on your way out. <sighs> You're on the panel. Uh, in Z National, we have Raj Chakraborty and uh, Zoe George this afternoon.